0: Family Wealth Hour Podcast. This week we have another incredible guest in Steve Legler. Steve is a proud FEA designate from the Institute of Family Enterprise Advisors and holds an advanced certificate in Family Business Advising and an Advanced Certificate in Family Wealth Advising from FFI in addition to having a master's in business administration from Ivy at the University of Western Ontario. He's also a CFA charter holder and the author of two books including Shift Your Family Business which was published in 2014. All right welcome to the Inception Family Wealth Hour. My name is Chris Delaney. I'm your host today. And I'm very happy to have as a special guest today, my friend and colleague, Steve Legler. Steve is in Montreal, where he works as a family legacy advisor and does facilitation work, coaching work, and mediation work with his clients, which include a large number of family business clients. I've had the pleasure of knowing Steve for quite a few years now, and uh, welcome to the show, Steve.
1: Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I have known you for a few years, and we've had a number of interesting conversations about all kinds of things. But this is the first time we're going to record one, so let's hope uh, let's hope it's among the most interesting we've had. <laughs> well, we'll keep this one civil. <laughs> <laughs> The, the the other ones were
0: were uh, uh, a little more animated sometimes so Steve, you are a family legacy advisor. can you tell me a little bit about uh, what that what that means uh what kind of work you do and how you got into that space because our topic today is um we we, we we're exploring the question about if there if there's a family that has tension inside the dynamics of the family, whether whether it's a family business, but maybe specifically if there is a family business, but that can occur in any family when there's planning to be done. And we're going to get into how to view that that tension, how to maybe manage that tension, um, maybe come up with a couple of suggestions that you will make for us. But everyone comes to these... these uh, career positions in their life with a story and something that pulled them in, something that that uh, uh, called them to this particular space. What brought you into this area?
1: Oh, I love the fact that you use the word calling because that is one of the <laughs> words I use myself to talk about how I got to where I am now, which was a calling and it happened relatively late in life. I was in, in my late uh, 40s. in the uh, FEA, Family Enterprise Advisor Program, which I know you followed, I think you were the year before me, but let me rewind to the beginning to tell you that I was born into a family business and my father was an immigrant entrepreneur who started his own business and I have two older sisters and I was born in 1964. So here I was, the only son, although the third child, and Back then, well, you know, the son was the really designated as the heir apparent. And so my earliest memories are that my job was to follow in my dad's footsteps and take over his business, and I didn't know any better. And it was actually a male-dominated industry. It was steel fabrication. And so all my earliest memories and, and my first jobs in high school and during summers at university were at the family business. My sisters had worked a little bit in the office here and there, but they, they were not like predestined to follow this path, whereas I was. And uh, I went and I did my my bachelor's degree, uh, BCom at McGill, because, well, of course, I had to study business because my job was to take over a business. This is what I had been told, and so this is what I, what I did. <clears throat> Lo and behold. Uh, after three years of working in the business, I it was time to get my MBA, went down the road from where you are, or actually in your backyard at Western, did my MBA, graduated in 1991 and was going back to a company with about 250 employees at the time, and I was being groomed to take over the top job sometime in the following few years and lo and behold along the way we ended up selling the company and six months later after i got back with my mba um we were no longer 250 people we were four people and two of us were named steve legler i was steve legler jr my dad had recently bought a hobby farm and so he went off to run that so i was then left to run what we would now call a family office so we had our liquidity event which I think you were kind of teasing that that sometimes occurs. And so here I was (laughs) now managing the buildings that we still had, some money from the sale, some patented products, and my dad was off running his farm, and so I was doing that. And I have to admit, I ended up doing that for a lot longer than I uh, would have liked like uh, 20 years or so before I finally started to get bored with it. So my dad had died in 08. I reorganized how the investments were being done, had a little more time on my hands. And that's where I stumbled into that FEA program, where I might have met you if I had done it a year earlier, I think. And in that program were a bunch of people who work with family businesses, and they were trying to learn how to deal with business families and family business people, but most of them were working for banks. They were working for uh, insurance companies, asset managers, uh, accounting firms. I had nothing in common with those people, but the people who were at the front of the room who were talking about the cool things they were doing with families, helping them figure out their values, their vision, their goals, helping them have family meetings, helping them plan their succession and their continuity. I was like, wow, I didn't know that that was a thing. Like doing that with families is an actual career. And so i, I that was my calling and that's what I've been doing ever since.
0: I, I think it's interesting that you say you stumbled into it because having done that myself, uh, I... I stumbled upon it, but I think I was looking for it um, as much as anything else. Specifically the the Family Enterprise Advisor uh, program. I saw an Um, ad on
1: LinkedIn. It said, become a Family Enterprise Advisor. I clicked on it because I was curious. I said, what the hell is that? And then- It was as simple as that. (laughs) And then, and then, and that (laughs) was like in December and the program started in January. So there I was six weeks later or so, in the program, not realizing what I had stumbled into, and everybody in the room before we started that first morning was saying, what are you doing here, and how did you you know, find this? And every single person besides me said, oh, well, Judy called me, and Judy convinced me, and I didn't know who Judy was, so Judy is Judy Cunningham, the one who started the program. And everyone else was there because they had been sold by Judy Cunningham to come and take this program, and I didn't even know who she was. So that's what I really honestly mean that I stumbled in. But I think that there was something that called me there that I had not realized that there was something for me in this space, and I'm really glad that I did so.
0: And if you think back on that with the uh, wisdom of uh, retrospect and time, what, what do you think that was that called you? And because the reason I ask that, Steve, is I think that, um, and I think I know what your answer is because we've talked about this many times, but I think it's something that a lot of advisors, whether they're financial advisors, legal advisors, account, accountants, any anyone who's advising a family business owner, they feel that sometimes and they don't know how to respond to it. They don't know where to go to look. They don't know uh, whether they, they should heed this, this call. And, and, you know, what, what was it that you, I mean, you could have started it, done the first session in the January there and stopped. Could have been not for you. How did you know it was for you?
1: Um, it was really cool to actually have people, and I mean now the teachers at the front of the room, um, talk about subjects that I was quite familiar with, having lived them, but had never heard anyone put them into frameworks and models, and talk about them. And so that first module on family dynamics, that was two or three days. There was there was one other person in our group that that actually came from a family business, and and it turned out that t- two of us were contributing like eighty percent of the comments from the class, and I just thought it was so cool that we were talking about a subject that I inherently got from a having lived it as part of my life perspective, but had never seen anything, you know, during all my years of school. Um, Now there are some universities that teach family business, still not nearly as many as I wish there would be. But I'm jealous when I get asked to go and speak in front of a class at one of these schools that that teaches family business, because that would have been you know, pretty cool for me to have lived through back in those days. But this whole field of working with families and, and this kind of stuff is really only a few decades old. So I guess we're part of the, like the front wave of what's going through now. And I'm, I'm happy to be part of it.
0: And you did an MBA, how would you contrast or compare the MBA to the FEA? Uh, Not so much the academic experience, but the content and the purpose of the content, um, and the direction that it was trying to take people?
1: Well, so I did my MBA at Western, or what we call now Ivy, and it was like 100% case method. So what I really loved about it was there was no, you know, study this and come and pass the test. Everything was based on a real life case. And I guess that's the biggest parallel. I'd never thought about it before, but really the FEA program was that we we talked about a lot of real family business situations. We didn't talk a lot about theoretical stuff. So every single one of the teachers at the front of the room had had experience with, with dozens of family clients. And we were often almost always talking about real family situations. We didn't necessarily have, you know, any vignettes or things like that. They were all based on real life stuff. And so in terms of like a learning environment where you're talking about real things with a couple of one or two smart people at the front of the room to guide the discussion, to make sure the lessons, um, they're very different experiences. And and I did one in my 20s and one in my 40s, but uh, I'm glad that I did both of them. And each one of them gave me one whole heck of a lot. And and of the of all the letters I have after my name, because I've managed to do a whole bunch of different degrees, the MBA and the FEA are two that are <clears throat> always on my business card.
0: And you 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 mentioned that you did one in your twenties and one in your forties. Was there a benefit to doing the FEA later in life? That you, did, would you have appreciated it the same way if you'd done it when you were younger?
1: Um. You know what? I, I when when I did it, I think the average age in the class was probably forties or so. And mm-hmm. as I see the people who are graduating now, it feels like they're getting younger. And part of me is a bit jealous. Um, I like to say that if I had if I had had this calling ten years earlier, in my late thirties instead of my late forties. I try to imagine where I might be now in terms of, you know, what I'm doing. Um, So I I think it's cool that younger people are getting it. I hope that they are doing it for the right reasons. I know that, that, you know, a lot of the bigger employers, like the big banks and accounting firms, are sending a lot of people into that program. I hope that they aren't just doing it and sending a young person and they do it and then they come back and two years later they're doing something else and they really didn't You know, they almost not did it for nothing, but I wish my wish for the program is to get more people that really make this a central part of what they do with families, because I know that there is plenty of need out there families in Canada and everywhere else that really could use the kind of guidance of people who really get the whole family stuff and not just looking at things from one silo and that's that's the one thing that that program gave me was access to that whole hey, you know what, this is is not the kind of thing that one single person can help a family with. This is the kind of thing that a family needs a multidisciplinary team of advisors to work with them on. And and I hope that people really get that and will continue to want to work with a group of professionals to help a family properly.
0: So what is it about a family business, Steve, that makes it and, and, and we can maybe start to head into the, the specific type of work you do. You I mean, you're working with dynamic situations, and uh, and I can't think of, even in your own family, the dynamics that you had with uh, your family would have been, I'm sure, quite, quite difficult for someone to manage when, particularly you would have been in your late teens and 20s, when as the youngest child, you were having to deal with either what were very real expectations or what you perceived to be the expectations of your father. Um, At the same time, you've got sisters that you have to have a relationship with. Was that something that led you into this field
1: as well? Yes, and and really actually, let's, let's go back to the calling part in the course, what i found myself maybe not in the first module on family dynamics but the the next couple where we talked about business family stuff and, and things like that and i kept on thinking oh my god if our family only would have done a little bit of this and also i didn't mention it yet but i married into a business family so i met my wife in london at mba school but she's from Northern Quebec and she came from a, my father-in-law also started a business and he had, they had their liquidity event in 2001 and she had four siblings. And let me tell you that the way they handled their liquidity event and everything that's happened in the last 20 years compared to the way my family handled it were completely different. Not that they should have been the same, but I mean, the, the point is, Every family has to deal with the dynamics that they have. And the more you can kind of get out in front of that and have reasonable people trying to convene the sibling group and make sure that they're all on the same page, the better. And I've tried as a in-law in my wife's family to, um, help (laughs) and my, my, uh, desire to help has not necessarily been welcomed and i need to learn to accept that
0: and i don't expect that's an unusual thing i'm sure there's people listening to this this show right now who are nodding their head and and saying i hear you steve that mm-hmm. I, i'm in exactly the same spot um and we'll come and, and we'll circle back to that because i think that's a really interesting perspective that you have you mentioned though that if your family had done this and i think by that you were referring to the mindset and the process that's associated with what you got through in in particular with your family enterprise advisor training if if your family had done this how different it would be what's the this that,
1: that oh that's actually different? that's a really easy one <clears throat> So, um, you know about CAFE, the Canadian Association of Family Enterprise, which has now merged with IFEA, the Institute for Family Enterprise Advisors, and they now have resulted in an organization called FEX, Family Enterprise Exchange. Well, CAFE, back in the 80s, actually it started sometime in the 80s, and my dad joined the the local Montreal chapter, and he had gone to, you know, listen to some speakers at the time, And they said, you should have a family meeting. You really got to have a family meeting. And so I remember the year was 1985. Uh, I had just finished my, I had one year left at McGill. And my dad had said, we're all going up north. We went to mont and we all went for this family meeting. We spent the weekend there listening to my dad tell us some stuff. And then that was it. And then we did not have another family meeting. Until I think it was 2006, and the only reason that one was called was because my dad had just been diagnosed with cancer. So the you know having 20 years before f- between family meetings, that's a little bit longer than what you would normally recommend. I recommend people have their family meetings every year, or at worst every two years. And so the the conscious and intentional effort to have a place, a time, and a place for a dialogue among all the family members, even if a lot doesn't get done, the fact that you are doing it on a regular basis and it becomes part of the annual family process, that's what I try to instill in the families I work with is to start to, because you know so much of this comes down to communication. And if you just have communication when you think you need it, You are going to be missing many, many opportunities to have the kind of communication that you need or that you should be having to make sure that everyone in the family understands what's going on, what's at stake, who's going to do what, and all those other important things that need to be be discussed as a family.
0: Why don't they have... More family meetings. It's, it, it's and I had that same sort of epiphany, if you will. It and and I was embarrassed after the fact. So I had been practicing law since uh, uh, 1991, basically when I did my FEA and the in, uh, the year after you did. And in retrospect, I was embarrassed that the concept of a family meeting seemed cutting edge to me, uh, and that more people weren't doing this why doesn't it happen as much as you think it should
1: well there's there's actually two aspects to that like number one is why did my dad not have another family meeting and and the part of that is that it it didn't really uh accomplish much and nobody really enjoyed it and nobody said oh this was fun let's do it again next year and that's related to number two which is I would rarely recommend to a family to go and do this family meeting just on their own. Now, it's not that I want to have the gig to go and go away with the family for the weekend and lead them through two days of activities, but to really have some thought put into it, to really have more than one person organizing it, to really think through how you're going to use your time and make it make it partially educational, partially fun, partially business and to really put some thought into all that to make it something that when you get to the last day people aren't saying, "Oh my god, I can't wait to go home." They're actually saying, "Hey, you know what? Next year when we do this, we should add this or think about doing it at this place to have a little bit of excitement in it." Cuz I understand it's it's not easy to organize an event for a group of people realize that they're not really enjoying it and then sort of telling them you're going to force them to do it all over again but when you're when you're the family leader and you've made all the decisions it's hard to sort of just like give that away for for especially for business founders and entrepreneurs who started business they're just not used to doing that and so it was a foreign concept to my to my father to do that and i think Maybe he was, never thought it would be something that he should hire someone to come and do, but perhaps he could have hired someone to just sort of help him schedule it and, and maybe even bring his secretary along to help organize a few things. Like Just think outside, just bringing your family members and then telling them stuff. That's the other part is that you really need, the person calling the meeting can't be thinking, here is the 95% of the stuff I need to tell these people, and oh, I'll leave 5% of my brain open for them to tell me stuff back. I mean, it really needs to be a bit more balanced than that. But most of the founders are in too much of a rush to say, okay, here's all this wisdom and here's all my desires, and now I'm going to download them all onto the next generation. It, it's really hard for those people to absorb it all in one shot. And that's why you need to have a series of meetings. And I always tell people, don't try to have the one big family meeting to, to share everything you've been thinking about your whole life. Like, let it out in little bits and see how it's received and kind of leave them wanting more. And share things one little bit at a time and see how, see how the uptake is from the kids
0: you're describing a very intentional process. It's not people getting together and, and maybe like your dad's first meeting was, and he was gonna, and that was a change in communication style for him. He had to, I'm sure that was difficult to go from telling to, to sharing and, and, and actually getting input. It's kind of often a lot of uh, uh, family business founders live by the golden rule, as far as communication goes, that is to say that the person that has the gold makes the rules oh, yeah. and, and they determine the communication. You're describing to me with a you know an, an iterative process, I think, and that this is a profound change in communication that you uh, are advocating is benefited by a third-party facilitator, someone like yourself, who can come in and change the communication style and allow the 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 infusion of purpose into the entire process. Is that a fair way to describe that?
1: Yes. Well, uh, 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 the infusion of of purpose and the part about um, I'm trying to figure out the simplest way to say this. Not having the leading generation making all the decisions for what's going to benefit the rising generation. So there's nothing that turns off the young people faster than being told this is what we're going this is what we're doing for you without having asked them what you know how would you like to be involved. So it's really more about the democratization of everything and this is what scares the older people because they kind of figure oh my god you think i'm gonna have a family meeting and now we're gonna have everyone vote on everything of course the kids are gonna you know do stuff different than what i want and i'm not saying democratization means let's go and put every single thing to a vote and if you have three kids and it's just two parents and three kids you're gonna lose every vote that's like the that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying starting to have a process whereby the voices of the different people are heard and be allowed to be heard. Because because too often and I'm sure you've seen this in, in, in drawing up estate plans, the parents will go to their professionals and they'll say, this is what we want to do. And then they'll write it all up. And then eventually the kids will find out, by the way, this is how mom and dad decided that, you know, when they die, this is what's going to happen. And the kids are like, what, why did you do it that way? How come this, how come that? And they will have had no knowledge, no input, no chance to discuss things at all. And you know, there's all the fair versus equal and different needs of different kids that all these are all things that could be and should be, I'll argue, should be part of the discussion, but are so often not discussed because, well, let's just say that it brings up some uncomfortable topics sometimes.
0: I've often thought that, I mean, there are some statistics, Ipsos suppose Reid did a, a, a poll three three springs ago three Aprils ago uh, and confirmed sort of the anecdotal trope that you'll hear that 50% of adult Canadians don't have a have a will uh, I've seen numbers suggesting that's the same in in the United States and I, I'm always reminded Steve of the scene in in uh, the Wolf of Wall Street where the the, the character uh, is starts off and finishes the movie by having people Buy a pen, and and sell me this pen. Sell me this pen. And as he's trying to get people to do it, you know, they're saying, "Oh, it's a nice pen. It's got good ink. It, it's got nice weight." And he moves on until somebody finally says, "What do you What do you do with this pen?" what are some of the most profound things that you've done documents that you've signed and tell me about that. And they they say, Oh, well I did my will with that. Or I wrote a letter to my grandmother with that, you know, something, Mm -hmm. something profound and emotional and something that, that stirs you and that when we commit something in writing, it's usually something, you know, except a text or something. If we bother to put it down on paper, it's very profound. And I have often believed and I'd be interested in your 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 experience on this. That one of the reasons that we we see very few shareholder agreements actually executed, and we see half of people without a will that should have a will, is because they do not trust the dynamics of the environment that they are dealing with that they will lock in by signing that agreement. And they, they there's fear. There's a fear, and it goes right back to what you just said that. Uh, after the fact, everyone's going to be saying, "Well, what's this all about?" And that there's uh, they don't want to deal with that, and they would rather they would gamble. They would prefer the gamble of of uh, doing nothing to doing something and getting blamed for that.
1: And and that's unfortunate. And it's been true for a long time, and will probably be true for a long time as well. And that's our eternal challenge, I think, as advisors to such families, is to actually get them to do what they know deep down they need to do, but that they have fears about doing. And so maybe part of the solution is is being able to convince them that we can be a resource for them to get them to to where it will be doable and it is doable and that they can that they will be so happy that they did it so so often the fear of what's going to go wrong and having the discussion is is blown out of proportion and that a properly structured and guided discussion with with professionals who are who know what they're doing and who understand what's at stake that that can make the all the difference in the world and people will realize and say things like wow if i had known it was going to go you know that well we would have done this 10 years ago and those are the kind of things that we hear and it's just because they they are scared to have the discussion not realizing that you know even if things aren't perfect even if there is a little blow up even if it does take a few meetings to to go over some misunderstanding, to make people uh, realize certain things, that that you can get through all those things and you will get to the point where you will have an agreement that everyone has sort of been a part of and will buy into. And so that after you're gone, everyone already knows what's going to happen and you're not saving the big fight for after your funeral. I mean, I think you said you talked to Tom Deans. I remember Tom telling a story once in one of the few few times I've seen him speak where he talks about this this sound that he's heard from lawyers who have been in, in the room for like the reading of a will after somebody dies. And it, it's hard to describe. So maybe the podcast is the best place to do it but I'm going to try and imitate it it's sort of like a sound of like somebody will once they hear the lawyer say what What? happens and and it it can go both ways like it could be somebody who realizes they got nothing and they were expecting millions or it could be someone who expected nothing and realizes they're getting everything And, and it's the same kind of sound and my argument is you don't want to have surprises at your will reading so make sure you go and you talk to your family about what your wishes are, and make sure that you set things up in such a way that everyone understands them and they won't be fighting each other they'll just they'll know exactly what you wanted them to do and they'll be able to do it and they'll still be able to get along with their siblings
0: and 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 you would have had to have managed that, and you've obviously come to this feeling that and you've said it. Different voices need to be heard. What's the benefit of hearing different voices? Oh, my God. Family um, voices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so I have two sisters. I've got two kids. Uh, every family I've ever met with more than one child, the kids are more, di- like, they're very, they're similar, but they're also so different. And so if you don't take – if you if you as the parent – and this can happen often in a, in a business family, right? So the, the, the family has uh, three or four kids, but only one of them works in the business, and the others are doing something else. And then the parents sort of really only listen to that one who they're working with in the business. And then the others are not listened to. And things get so skewed and out of whack. I mean, you're really, if, I think every parent says they love all their kids equally, and and I think most of them are probably telling the truth, uh, the ability to actually take in the feedback from all of your kids as you're deciding what's going to happen with what you've accumulated, I think that's uh, I would think that it's something they would all want to do, but sometimes it doesn't happen. And that's, and that's when problems come up. And I would I would rather, as a parent, be the one guiding those discussions among my children while I still can and while I can still make changes than to sort of decide on a few things and say, something like I've heard this crazy thing. Oh, well, we'll just make them all equal partners and then they'll have to get along. Ha ha ha. Which <laughs> has got to be like one of the stupidest things anyone could ever do. I've, but I've it, heard it, that many it, times. Happened. It's happened more often than, I I mean, I'm still shaking my head just thinking how anyone could say that. But um, anyway, I don't, I don't want to judge other, other people's parenting skills. Well, and I think that's the, it's the,
0: uh, the fear part of it. They, they, the, and it's a bit of a drop of the ball of responsibility to do that as well because you you have an opportunity to corral and interpret the various perceptions you've already identified that those different differing family perceptions give you better insight so you're enhancing your decision-making right away. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking of a fairly well-known bias that we're all exposed to, which is confirmation bias. If, if we're only talking to somebody who's like-minded and agrees with what we agree, of course, we're going to settle in on a decision that uh, that, that makes sense to them and to you. But that might not be a very good decision because you've really limited the, uh, the circle of, uh, of input. And to avoid those biases, we really, we need to reach out to uh, other family members in a family business, for example, and we'll come to this other professionals in a multidisciplinary uh, uh, environment, because we sometimes can't see what they're seeing, or we want to see certain things. And I think that that's probably one of the benefits of having a facilitated family meeting so that you can help
1: them see things more clearly. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's the, the job of a, a facilitator in a family meeting is to make sure to draw out all the ideas and all the opinions to put more things on the table and then eventually to help sort out what's on the table. But, but what often happens is... Like, okay, it's family meeting time and the family leader, let's call him dad, just because that's what his usual moniker is. Dad will sort of start the meeting and say, this is what I want. And, and anyone who even came with the small hope of, you know, being able to have some input gets turned off right away and says, this is going to be just like every other meeting we've ever had. And so I don't want to participate. And so so really the facilitator's job starts before they even walk into the room and and one of the biggest thing the fa- things the facilitator needs to do is to control the input of those who usually lead the discussions and in fact i have a colleague who who she says when she leads a family meeting she always starts with either the youngest or the quietest person and sort of works her way along through all the people through the next oldest or the next quietest and leaves the, the the one who's usually leading the meeting to the end to force them to listen. Because if the first person goes and says something and then like a few, you know, head nodders and, and would they just, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, OK, because they're used to dad being in charge. And then anyone who might have had a dissenting opinion. Uh, never gets a chance to properly put it on the table or it gets dismissed too quickly. And so it really, it does take uh, courage for the family leaders to agree to have that kind of a meeting. I think they're usually happy that they've done it once they've learned that what's out there is is really reasonable and interesting and other opinions and new information and and creative ways to think about the way things can be structured going forward, that um, they really need to trust the the their family members and the facilitator to be able to sort of keep things under control. Because I know that when there's when there's tension in the family. Um, a lot of, there's always, there's always fear that things will go wrong. And I've, I've been in meetings where people have stood up and told everyone to go and F themselves and walk out the room. I've, I've been in those and, and it's not fun, but that's, that's part of, uh, I mean, and we did get through that by the way, and, and every, (laughs) we still had another eight hours of a productive meeting after that person left. So it's not always bad when, when, um, when the anxiety comes out and there is, there is a blow up. I mean, it's I, I would rather have families that come and, and, and do a little bit of, you know, huffing and puffing and screaming at each other than the ones who just nod their heads but secretly deep down inside, you know they don't agree. And there there's that shareholder's agreement that never gets signed that you were alluding to earlier.
0: When should this process be started, Steve? When, when should, I, I mean... I, as I'm listening to you speak, sometimes I can imagine scenarios where an illness, like you described with mm-hmm. your father, uh, precipitates his desire to have that next family meeting. But, I mean, I suppose any time is better than at no time. But it's probably some fear there that that opportunities and conversations are the timeline for that's running out. But what are the other times? Like what, what usually brings... Uh, second generation or a uh, rising generation family member to you or uh even the 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 founding generation to you and say steve we need to get going on family meetings what's what's common going on in their in the back of their mind what's changed them that they want to do this now? it
1: it could be a number of different things but it's often something we would describe as some kind of a nodal event maybe it's the first child getting married maybe it's the first grandchild being born maybe it's dad hitting 60 maybe it's uh Uncle Bob that just had a heart attack and oh my God, you know what, this could happen to me. I better get started. It, it could be any number of things. Um, the more people in the family that are ready for it, the better. So if, 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 I mean, if the older generation is not ready and the younger generation are trying to get them started, that could often be uh, a challenge. It's easier when the leading generation is involved and kind of on board, but, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible to get started if you are the younger generation. And what I've often said to the rising generation, if if the parents don't want to have the meetings, start having the meetings among the siblings. And I've heard stories of siblings that have started to have meetings and and then the parents got, you know, interested and, and curious and said, Hey, can we come to these meetings too? So there's there's all kinds of ways that it could start. What makes it start? It really needs at least one person to be the champion of it, to be the family champion, to be the person to say, I really think we need to do it. That's often someone whose name is typically mom. I mean, I had one family that I started to work with and, and the mother told me, I've been thinking about this for 10 years and I've been talking to my husband about it for five and we're finally doing something about it. And so it it's, it's, it's. Why do you it think can be anything? It's the mom? What's that? I mean, you know, there's a
0: statistical reality to that. But if you had to dissect that a little bit, why do you think the uh, the 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 family champion is often
1: mom? Yeah, it is. It is. Well, more why often than not, it's that you know, dad is the leader in the business, but mom is the one who's making sure that all the kids are okay and that the kids aren't fighting and that she wants to make sure all the kids are coming for christmas and so mom is typically more worried about the dynamics and everyone being happy and and like some people call mom the ceo the chief emotional officer and so oftentimes um the reach out for help to get started on family meetings will come from a mom um it if it comes from more than one person if it can be mom and, and, and a daughter or, or mom and a son or dad and a daughter, uh, if, if, if two people are already starting to talk and they're saying, you know, we should have like a bigger discussion with the rest of the family, but we're not sure how that's going to work because, you know, so-and-so doesn't like to cooperate and so-and-so might not want to come. I mean, that's a good sign for them to want to maybe reach out to someone to, to help them with it. And what I always say, just since we're on this, Um, when you have a family meeting, you invite all the people, but you don't force anyone to come. So if there's a son or a daughter who says, I don't want to come to the meeting, you don't say, well, we're not going to have the meeting or you have to come. You say, okay, we're going to have the meeting. We'll let you know. If you change your mind, you can always come and we'll tell you what happened after. And then when we have the next one, we'll invite you again. And hopefully you'll want to come and and you can't force people to come to a meeting and you just need to to make sure that they feel welcome, and presumably, if one child chooses not to come, they will hear from their siblings after, and maybe they'll hear that it wasn't so bad, or maybe they'll start off and say, yeah, I'm sure dad did this again, and you didn't, and then maybe someone will say, well, no, actually, uh, we did actually make some progress on something, and hopefully next time you'll come too, because these are things that they don't always go the way people expect them to and sometimes it's because they go much better
0: and and it's probably it's probably self-evident that you don't want to have the first meeting be the meeting where you're going to determine who the new ownership team is going to be or i'm finally you know this is my final will and this is how i'm laying it out you're getting the cottage you're not and things like that there's an incremental aspect to this that ultimately
1: results in better outcomes oh absolutely and and that's you see that's the whole reason i always you know want people to start early so if you start when it seems like everything is going well, then you have time to have many, many meetings before the medical diagnosis or before something happens or before one of the kids gets divorced. You can start to already have some of these meetings and do things on an incremental, and that's one of my favorite words in this whole space is incrementally, don't try to go too fast. Do it little bit by little bit. And and even the, you know, some some families have so much wealth that they they don't display. And and often the next generation is completely surprised when they learn how much wealth there actually is. And and those are the ones where you really want to start slow and start opening up it's sort of like it's not a light switch it's a dimmer switch so you have your first meeting and you turn it on and you move the light to like five percent and then the next meeting you move it up to 10 percent, and you do it slowly you don't come in and say oh by the way you know when we die there's like a hundred million dollars here and you know start fighting for it i mean i i still remember hearing one of warren buffett's kids give a speech once and he said is is Warren Buffett decided one year, many many years ago, to give the th- his three kids each a million dollars to give away to charity, and he watched what they did with it, and he liked what they did, and a couple of years later, he gave them each fifty million dollars. So, like a million might be a lot for some, <laughs> but for him, this was like, "Here's your weekly allowance. Let's go I'll make sure change. you don't blow yeah. it." Yeah, but but it just just to illustrate that, you know, um, receiving wealth from your parents can be a huge huge it will have a huge impact on the people and the impact can be fantastic and it can be horrible and so doing it right and doing it intentionally and doing it incrementally and doing it in a way where you're you're sharing with your kids and you're not talking down to them but you're not you know giving them everything either Um, one of the my favorite ways to capture this was a guy that I heard, and now I can't think of his name. It'll come to me. But it was, you want to raise your kids in such a way that you would be prepared to leave them everything that you have and know that they'll be fine with it, or you'd be fr- and you'd be prepared to leave them nothing and know that they would be okay without anything from you. And mm-hmm. if you can do that... That I mean that's I think what everybody wants. But you don't get there just by saying, Oh, by the way, here's all the stuff. Now what? Like it it all comes it's there's there's the parenting and there's the sharing of the expectation, the sharing of the opportunity, the sharing of the wealth and the and what you what the stewardship that you're expecting them to demonstrate with this wealth.
0: You mentioned that the a sudden infusion of, of wealth, it's, it's, particularly if it's not fully appreciated, what the boundaries of that wealth, financial wealth in particular, are, is very much like a lottery win. And, uh, you know, the stories...
1: Yeah, we know uh, what happens with lottery winners, right? How many of them still have it five years later?
0: It's an unhappy story. Um, and, and there's probably an analogy there that, that is, is uh, although imperfect, at least somewhat reliable um why you know why would there be and this leads sort of to where we're going to go with our question which is what if there is tension in my that the dynamics of my family system why would passing on suddenly a huge amount of wealth be a a very negative event in terms of the perception of a child in relation to the parent that's distributing that wealth, why would that be a negative thing for them? How would they feel about that?
1: Well, I, I'm just trying to think through a little scenario where, and actually there, there are plenty where, you know, um, the parents have the liquidity event and they distribute just enough to use their capital gains exemptions. And then they uh, they sit on the rest and basically tell their ch- kids, well, you know, you don't get anything for now, but when we're dead, you get all this. And that's something that I see far too often. And I know I've told my kids, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, run my affairs, but I'm going to be damn sure that when I'm getting older, you're not sitting there and cheering for me to hurry up and die so you can have the money. <laughs> and, and, and I see that way too often, and I'm sure you've seen it too. And so... If, if, if it's a case where the big windfall came after a long period of waiting, yeah, you can imagine how there there could be some bad scenarios. If if they do it too early, like there are some people that say, okay, when you turn 25, you're going to get half of what's in this trust for you or whatever. Um, it really depends on the preparation. I, I don't know... Uh, I don't think that most twenty-five-year-olds would be ready to handle a significant windfall like that. Um, but I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure the success rate isn't zero. But I, I, I don't know how high I would put it unless there's some preparation, and 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 you know, it, it all comes down to the parenting, Chris. You know this. I've said this many times, in that most of the f- problems that you see in a family business are really not family business problems. They're, they're parenting issues that, that didn't get handled at a younger age. And whether it's the way the kids get along or the fact that some kids are allowed to get away with whatever because they're, you know, mom's favorite or dad's favorite, those, those kind of things can really cause the problem later. But But the people who do a good job parenting, this stuff is actually not that hard for them because it, it's been basically that the kid's whole life has been preparing them for what, what's coming. It's the ones that, you know, they didn't pay enough attention or they didn't, um, th- th- they know themselves that, that there are things that they could have done or should have done differently. And now they're trying to like maybe gloss over them and think that we can just, you know, draw up this will in this way and, and everything will be fine. And, 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 I think it's worth paying some attention to those sibling relationships before everything in the will gets cast in stone.
0: Well, and I would agree. One of the reasons I got into this space was because I had a a sense, even though I couldn't really put uh, a name to it, but I I had a sense that I spent more time preparing the assets to distribute from one generation to the next than I ever spent thinking about the, the beneficiaries of those, the recipients of those assets. And and I will always be thankful that, that the FEA training and some other work that I've done that we also share uh, uh, helped lead me to see how limited the planning I was doing actually actually was I was I was really interested in, in you mentioned it earlier talking about different voices and, and perceptions and and multidisciplinary advising um, how how does that? Uh, uh, how does the ability to work as a, as an integrated, multidisciplinary team, so the lawyer, the accountant, everybody working together with someone like yourself, work better for the the family business owners, for example, or any family of wealth?
1: Well, you you prefaced it beautifully, Chris. I don't know if you realized what you did. You set up, and uh, you didn't say that that famous saying, but you you sort of left it right there for me to grab, which is. Um, Too many families spend all their time and attention on preparing the assets for the heirs and not enough time preparing the heirs to receive the assets. And so, yes, use your lawyer and your accountant to figure out all the best ways to prepare those assets for the heirs, but do not neglect the heirs and prepare them through the family meetings, through facilitated discussions, through meetings with the lawyers and the accountants and whoever is involved in, in whatever trusts you would have created to make sure that you educate these people, let them make sure they understand how things are structured, what roles and responsibilities, what rights they have, what obligations they have, what what's coming to them. The 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 people who are going to inherit, when they have a bunch of question marks and they have no clue, that's when you have problems. If the families that go and take the time to have the meetings with the parents and the kids and the lawyer and and the account and someone to help explain this and make sure that they all understand, that's that's the work that's necessary. To prepare not only the assets for the heirs, but to prepare the heirs for the assets, and sometimes, sometimes they need to have just separate meetings with the kids. Sometimes the the family meetings without the professionals, but with someone to deal with the preparing the heirs part is what's what's required. I worked with with a, a sibling group for over three years before we even sat down and met with the parents, where my role was just to to help get them used to figuring out how they're going to work together, how they're going to make decisions together and how, and they organized some events with me helping them. They organized family events. I hadn't even, I'd only met the parents once. And so it is possible to sort of make sure that's my biggest thing is making sure the sibling group gets along and understands what they're getting themselves into because that sibling group who are going to inherit, that's, that's the biggest um x factor in whether or not this is going to be a successful transition from one generation to the next because even if if one child is ready to take over if they're outnumbered by uh, other siblings that don't agree or don't like them or don't agree with the choice of of who's leading the business um there are potential problems that are that are just down the road
0: and for the parents they're often moving from more, uh, I don't like the negative connotation, but a little bit more of a dictatorial form of decision-making, a more singular form of decision-making. And they've never necessarily taken the time to prepare the next rising generation for the distributive decision-making that they're going to have to make. They're going to have to learn to come to shared decision-making outcomes in a way that the founders of the business their parents and maybe just one of the parents never had to and that should be part of the process as well
1: oh that's that's actually that's, you've 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 put it in a more uh, a clearer way than i did it's so when you go from one person or or a couple that own the vast majority of the wealth or the business or whatever you want to call it and that when you fast forward to the when when that generation is no longer around who's going to own this it the number of owners usually will be a lot more and so the reality of how how what kind of governance the family is going to have and governance meaning decision making and communication and problem solving if you don't start working on that and you wait until after they're gone and now here, here's the four kids and they each own 25% and now they're gonna start to figure out how they're gonna manage this together. Whoa, you should have started that um, years before while mom and dad were still there to guide them and to help create some rules and to maybe course correct if they had decided on certain things that really didn't make sense for the sibling group to be owning certain assets together.
0: And one of the reasons that might not happen is because the person who's doing this, uh, you described a nodal event, uh, they've had a nodal event, perhaps, so something significant, maybe another way of describing that might be that they've had a look at their own mortality and, and it's time to do these, uh, these long, delayed planning steps. They finally get around to it, but they can't push through it because they sense that there is... Tension, uh, they're worried about conflict. And they're actually managing it right now fairly well. Uh, and they don't want to introduce something by planning. Most people don't like to plan. By planning, that will disrupt that and they'll lose control of that. And you've you, you you've done some work, and I, and, and I know you've uh, written a book that deals with this topic, about Bowen theory and family dynamics theory. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Steve?
1: Yes. Um, well, so first of all, just the, the fact that there's tension there, um, I think you're going to find that more often than not. You're going to find people who say, you know, things are pretty good. I don't want to start having these meetings. I don't want to kick the hornet's nest because right now everything's quiet. And so not that, not that Bowen family systems theory is... The cure-all to any of this. Um, I did uh, publish a book last summer called Interdependent Wealth. And it has a kind of a long subtitle, but it's How Family Systems Theory Illuminates Successful Intergenerational Wealth Transitions. Um, I started studying Bowen Theory right after I finished doing the FEA program because we had talked in those courses about how the family is a system. And I was sort of left a bit wanting as to what that meant. And so I started to do a bit more research and I stumbled into this field of Bowen family systems theory. Murray Bowen was a psychiatrist in the U.S. back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And he came up with this theory or uh, with a number of concepts in it, um, talking about how actually family relationships are actually more scientific Uh, than most people would imagine. And so that what you see in one family or what you see in a family in this generation, it's actually a lot of things are predictable from what happened in previous generations. And so by working and analyzing a family through the various previous generations, many of the things that the current generations are dealing with are not new to the family and they've already been through them before at whether through the grandparents and certain types of behavior and certain aspects follow through from one generation to the next. I'm not doing this much justice because it's a very complex thing that I had studied for four years before writing a book about it and I freely admit that many of the people with whom I studied had been doing it for decades and so It's been a good lens for me to when I walk into a family, the training that I did in this to to help me to picture and analyze and understand where the tension points are and perhaps what sort of might have led to causing some of them and allows me to interact with all the different family members with a pretty good picture of of where they're coming from. And my, my coaching and facilitation training has enabled me to sort of maybe ask the right questions a lot of the time. So I can pick up where the stumbling blocks are and help guide the discussions to in ways to hopefully minimize the amount of anxiety and the tension. And that's what we were talking about earlier is the, the benefits of having a, uh, an outside trained impartial, neutral observer can be especially beneficial in cases where they do expect that, that things might not go as smoothly as they expect.
0: Is there sort of a liberation feeling, a sense of, and I'm gonna sigh here, oh, okay. When someone, you take them through and you show them some patterns that are being replicated through their family, um, did they take a sigh of relief and and think? I thought this was just me. I, mean, I thought, I thought I was the only one who'd ever had this happen to me.
1: Uh, absolutely. Um, it's 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 almost as if when when you can sort of realize that some of the things that you've done or that have happened to you in your life that you've always sort of blamed on yourself, where all of a sudden you realize that. Maybe it wasn't all your fault or it wasn't all your screw-up. It's uh, One of the things in in Bowen theory is that um, so many of our behaviors are just patterns that we've learned, and we don't necessarily have as much choice in a lot of things as we might think we we have. And so a lot of things that that have happened in our lives were sort of pre-programmed from generations before. And it actually takes a lot to to go against what the patterns are driving you to do. And so if, if that helps um, make people realize that, yes, certain things aren't their fault or they weren't alone or, geez, as it turned out, you know, my my grandfather went through some of the same things and and. I did. I I might have done things a little bit better than him. So I, you know, I, at least we're going in the right direction, and and my kids hopefully will do better than me. Um, there there is there can be a lot of aha moments and a lot of sighs and a lot of relief uh, when looking at the whole family system diagram, and that's what people who study Bowen family systems theory spend a lot of time looking at a at a genogram or a family diagram. And look at everything through the lens of all the other people in in their ancestry to see how how they may have affected things. It's really really interesting to to walk through some of those things with with family members because they do often have um, not just a sort of cursory in, interest in them, but there there could be some deep stuff that comes up.
0: What's one of the more typical patterns that you would see replicated from one generation to the next or across multiple generations that they're not even aware of and and in particular with respect to a family business and maybe how they make decisions in a family business or how they interact with one another
1: one of the ones that that I think is the easiest for most people to grasp and so, so Bowen theory has eight concepts and, and I think number six is, is called sibling position and he didn't actually come up with this, this one himself, it came from a, a German doctor named Walter Thoman who had written a book about all the different sibling positions. And I mean it's not pres- so you
0: mean firstborn middle yeah, child. Yeah. It's not there. prescriptive.
1: Yeah, yeah. It doesn't say the firstborn will always and the youngest will always but but the patterns that, that they talk about that sort of replicate and and sometimes when you when you've studied a lot of this and you meet someone and you go, Oh, you, this this person must be a firstborn or this person is, is a is a is, is a youngest. And it's funny I had uh, a couple of months ago, I had three people contact me within like about 10 days um, to, to with possibilities to work with them. And as it turned out, each one of them was the youngest. And it was like, this is not random. I mean, the, the kind of people who reach out to someone, hey, can you come and help with my family? That's kind of a youngest thing to do. The, the oldest would have said, I'm going to take care of this. I'm the oldest. I've always been the oldest. I've been in charge and telling my little siblings what to do my whole life. I'm going to take care of it. Whereas the youngest is typically the kind of person who, who would more likely reach out and and be more of a mediator type and see all the different sides of the other people in their family and then reach out for help. And so whether it's the firstborn son who takes over the business or the oldest daughter who then becomes usually the one who takes over from the mother as the family champion and the chief emotional officer. There's a lot of things in, in that aspect that really, if you, if you walk into a family thinking along those lines, you're not going to get everything right, but there's, there's a lot of shortcuts you can sort of take into sort of analyzing what, what might be going on. And you always need to then verify those and not make assumptions. But when you do make efforts to verify them, you'll often find out that that the sibling position stuff is seems to be more hardwired than a lot of the other stuff.
0: And interestingly enough, I think you said you were the youngest, and here you are in yep. this space doing this work.
1: <laughs> yeah, oh, and I'm the one who in my family is the one who, you know, has everyone over to my house for Christmas and for the summer things and and I'm the one who is is the organizer of, of things as much as possible and and that's okay. I'm 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 good with it.
0: And understanding that dynamic, how does that help you make better decisions as a you know, you're helping your clients make better decisions, but how does the how does the the, the client that has come to you, the person trying to, to deal with tension, um, how does the knowledge of sibling position, for example, uh, lead to a better decision? What what does it allow them to do?
1: Well, one of the things that a, an outsider coming into a family can can help them with the most is something that I, I learned in, in one of the facilitation training programs I did um, that really talks about revealing the system to itself. Mm-hmm. So walking in there dealing with the family members, meeting them, talking to them all, interviewing them, and then sharing with them what you see as an outsider that they don't see. So pointing out to them that, do you realize that, you know, when these subjects come up, this person always does this, and, and this person always makes these decisions, and whenever this topic comes up, somebody does it. Like, just pointing out to them things that are going on in their own family system that they don't see because they are like the fish in the water. They don't know that they're in the water. But when you come in, when you're when, and it's a privilege to be invited into these family situations, to come in there and have them trust you enough to deal with them over a series of hours, days, weeks, whatever it is, and get to know them and watch them and, and help them interact and then show them things about their interrelationships that they probably haven't seen, or that maybe only one person has seen, but whenever they tell the rest of the family, they don't listen. So when somebody else comes and tells them, this is what's going on, it's so helping them see what's really going on in their family is what allows people then, like, I I can bring things up to mention in front of dad that maybe the kids would never say to dad, and it's not always that. It could be the, the, the brother, the sister, sure. could be anyone. So just having someone who is not there, who, who's not part of the system and therefore is able to extricate himself from the system and look at it and then show the people in the system, this is what I see. Do you agree that this is – and then figure it out. Maybe you didn't get it 100% right, but then have the discussion with the people to to un, to come to a consensus of what you do see. And then once everyone sees the same thing, it's much easier to figure out what the next step should be once you've figured out where you are. And just getting the clarity on where the family is and where the obstacles are, thats that's most of the work. Once you've done that part and shown them this is where you are and this is what people agree on and here's what the stumbling block is, now what are we going to do? But just to get to that point takes sometimes a heck of a lot of work that I dare say if the family is trying to do it on their own without some external help, I don't know you know, what the odds are of them getting there.
0: Well, and I, I've got to believe that if your if you're the the youngest or, or second youngest, and your older sibling, your oldest sibling, is seen assumes this firstborn control position, if you're not self-aware enough of your position in the hierarchy as far as birth goes, and you're not able to empathize with their own position, you probably respond to everything they ever say as, well, you're always bossy, you always take charge. And that can lead to negative dynamics inside the family as well. Just that inability to see the world through that other sibling's,
1: uh, I suppose, natural perspective. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's a, a much simpler example of what you asked me than the answer I gave. But <laughs> but even just working with two siblings and being able, for me, in a one-on-one with the sister to explain, you know, I, I know you see this in your brother. I see it too. And that's the way he is. And then go have a meeting with the brother and say, you know, your sister is this, and I see that too. And that's the way it is, and then let's have a meeting together and and figure out where the areas are that we need to clear up, so that you don't step on each other's toes as much.
0: And you mentioned that that we we learn this. If we learn it, can we unlearn it?
1: I ho- I sure hope so. <laughs> uh, but I I think I think the first step well, to unlearning something is 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 seeing that you're doing it, because because often we're doing things just on pure reaction and without you know even taking the time to notice and there's nothing like being you know thrown into a family situation to trigger you to bring you right back to your childhood um setups of of who does what and who triggers who when when who says what and it's fine when it's all in good fun and it's you know you're all happy to see each other but it can go it can go too far pretty quick, and if you want to have a productive family meeting, um, yeah, sometimes the uh, reverting to the old habits can can be a significant impediment to making progress in family meetings, and that's part of the facilitator's job is to deal with with what's in front of them, and sort of maybe allow some of that and and sort of to get a feel for the room. But then if it becomes something that's getting in the way of making progress, that's the perfect place for a facilitator to call things out and, and ask, does the family want to keep going down this road, or do you want to try and you know, make some progress on, on the I- items on the agenda?
0: Well, and one of the reasons I asked it that way, I wasn't trying to be cheeky, but uh, one of my favorite books, and and I would encourage anyone listening to, uh, to this uh, uh, podcast to read it at some point, is uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And in that book, he talks about all of the various biases and heuristics that our decision-making is subject to. And interestingly enough, Steve, one of the things he, and I've watched videos, uh, Ted, TED Talk style uh, presentations that he's made. If I understand it correctly, he, he somewhat believes that these biases exist and there's really not much we can do about them. And uh, the very best we can hope for is that our awareness of it um, allows us to create bumpers around some of the more difficult uh, and and unpleasant ways that it affects our decision-making. And so when I ask whether you can, if you've learned behavior across generations, can you unlearn it? I think I'm hearing from you that at least as far as systems theory goes in the Bowen model, You can unlearn this. It is something you're not just managing, but you can actually learn a whole new way of doing things.
1: It takes work. And that is, and so actually, I'm glad you brought me back to the Bowen stuff because one of the key things here is how um, you can really only control yourself or hope to try to control yourself. You cannot control your brother, your sister, your mother, your father. You can only try to control yourself. And even that isn't easy. But if you are able to control yourself and control how you react to the other people in your family, you will change the system. A system is, is, is seeking equilibrium or homeostasis, and it is the way it is. One person who tries to change won't always be able to change because the, the system will be trying to force them not to change. Um, but if you can hold out and hold to what's called your eye position and, and fight against the general um, organizational system trying to pull you back to equilibrium, if you can go and make the change, then eventually the system will have to change To adapt to your change. And so really, that's that's the key part of of the the Bowen model for the kind of work I like to do now, especially if I'm coaching only one person as part of a family, rather than working with a whole family system as a facilitator, which I I can do both. But what I've been doing more lately is coaching one person. And it's really fascinating to see how by working with one person to help them maintain the changes that they want to see, that it will and it does affect the rest of the system. But it's not easy to do because the because the the forces, the relationship forces in a system are, are not wanting to change. And so if one person decides, I'm going to start doing things differently because it's better for me, um, the rest of the system might cry out and say, no, no, don't do that. Change back. Uh, it's hard to hold that. But if you do hold it, then the rest of the system will adapt.
0: It, it's interesting that you described. That was, from my FEA training, that was one of my favorite words was homeostasis. I mean, if I learn nothing else uh, from that program, and that's not true, but that was the one I, I most enjoyed. And, and the, the concept, just for people that are listening that may not know what that is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I often think of it as, You've got a house, and it is, uh, I'm speaking to you from southern Ontario here, so it's January, and it's minus 40 Celsius outside, and you open up all the windows, and you turn the furnace up. The furnace is trying to heat the house to 70 degrees, and it is going to burn fuel and burn itself out, probably, trying to keep that home at 70 degrees. Even though the windows are all open, it's trying to, to manage that equilibrium. Um, and it will, do, it will exert every bit of energy that it has until it torches itself to achieve that equilibrium. And I think that's what you were describing. These family systems don't like the change, they're resistant to the change, and they're going to exert a fair bit of energy trying to fight that change but it's your facilitation work and as you've mentioned your coaching work which we'll get to that helps to individually move towards a a positive direction and you drag that system along with you you're kind of shutting the windows well you're shutting uh, the doors yes
1: (laughs) yes exactly and so i I like your your analogy that there are certain things happen and it changes it, it causes changes and some people, I mean, some, some things are set up to only let's get back to the way it was. And the furnace is the perfect example. And the furnace will do everything it can to do what it's programmed to do. And if that, if you just leave the windows open, that furnace is eventually probably going to blow itself out, trying to again, to trying to fight an uphill battle. And really having someone come and shut the windows would, would be a much simpler solution
0: and one of the other i remember i think we've even talked about this one of the most interesting things i came away with from uh, uh, when i was doing my own fea training and i've observed it a few times in various different scenarios is this concept of triangulation in in relationships uh if if you don't mind could you could you share a little bit about what that is because i think almost everybody experiences that in some way shape or form
1: yeah so triangles are are one of the concepts of bowen theory and it's it's one of the most fascinating ones because what they say is that um three people is actually the essential building block it's the molecule of relationships because because a two-person relationship is inherently unstable and it will eventually bring in another person. So so what Bowen encourages you to always do is to look at any group of people in subgroups of three. So if you have four or five people, those are now the interlocking triangles. And you can learn a lot just by looking at every three person group. And you'll see it a lot if if you get called in as an advisor, let's say with a husband and a wife, and now there's three people. And so what's gonna happen is like one of them is going to be trying to pull you in to your side and then the other one's going to be trying to pull you into their side. And there it, it's constantly the, the, the goal that a lot of people have in a three person organization is to get one other person to agree with them to help convince that other one, because it's lonely to be on the outside and be in the two against one. So one of the tricks of, uh, or one of the problems that advisors get into is that if you're not aware of this, it's very easy to sort of get pulled into each person's personal view of things. And now, what do you stand for at the end? And and people are constantly trying to play one person off against another. So it's just it's just to, to be aware of it, and to it it takes extra hard work to not get sort of sucked into to. A, a, other people who are trying to get you to, to come to their side. And so if two people are in conflict and they're each trying to pull you into their side, um, sometimes the safest place is to not get it pulled into either side and, and force them to learn to deal with each other and to sort of say, I'm not going to play, I'm not playing this game of, of picking sides. You will need to learn to work it out amongst yourselves. And that is an I position of itself, to be able to to, to, to be able to say, I'm not getting involved. And it's not, it's not easy, especially if you're the advisor, because you feel like, well, they're paying me to help them. But sometimes the most important thing you can do is to sort of force them to work things out between themselves and not be the one to, to pick sides. And if you're a parent, you probably know already how your kids try to play mom against dad.
0: I've been in meetings with advisors, Steve, I'm sure you have. I, and I know there's advisors listening to this, whether they're investment advisors, legal advisors, insurance advisors, where we've seen that happen. You have someone, say the lawyer, starting the conversation and they're talking to the business owner, for example, let's say it's the, the, the wife and the husband is ignored completely. Uh, through the course of that conversation. And I've often felt before I did had any, and I don't have much understanding of this bonus, why so it's so interesting to talk to you. I often felt that that was um, kind of a sales technique. It was a way to just curry favor with someone. I'm, they've got the money. I'm going to communicate with them alone. And then the other parties never really engaged. And as a result, they may, you know, if it's the female business owner you're talking to and she happens to die first, the next, the next place that uh, surviving spouse is going to go is to another advisor and, because they've felt neglected. And I think what you're telling me is that there's scientific knowledge around the fact that we do do this. And if we're aware of the fact that we do this, we can manage it better so that those negative outcomes don't happen. And then it happens in families amongst family members, but it also happens in uh, w- with with family members and their own advisors and advisors probably amongst advisors as well. It's a human condition.
1: Absolutely, and I think you 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 know you put your finger on it when you talked about um, if you recognize it, you can do something about it, and and that's what I have been learning. I mean, the study of Bowen theory is is like one part learning about the theory and nine parts learning about yourself and how <laughs> and how you could be more aware of yourself and what things you can do and should try to do to increase your own you know differentiation of self to be able to get less caught in situations of triangles to get less caught in situations where you're sort of just reacting to things because you've been programmed that way to sort of th- it's, there's a lot of self-awareness that that goes on for most of the people who study Bowen theory um, because it's it's one thing to understand what the theory says but it's sort of like you can't really learn to swim by reading a book and so you you could read a book about swimming but then if I you know take you out of my boat to the middle of the lake and you've never swam before and I throw you in uh, I'm not sure the book is going to help you. So it's it's learning bow and theory is is a, it's a process of self-discovery. And so it's not for everyone, um, but there's a lot. Everyone can learn something from it. And I tried to write my book for people who know nothing about it, but who want to learn a little bit um, because when I came to it, it seemed very opaque. And I think that one of the things that I do well is to take complex things and express them in ways that are easier to understand. And that's what I've attempted to do in this book to explain some of the areas where um, family wealth transitions and Bowen theory, where those two fields overlap and try to explain things in a in a useful and entertaining way so people can can start to grasp what Bowen theory might have to offer for them um, some people will read the book and want to go and do more and some will say "No, oh, this is way too much work for me and both of those responses are just fine
0: well and i think we've just touched and you, you very graciously touched on very superficially but i think it has helped us understand that on at least two of the eight bone concepts, one being triangles, which we just talked about, and the other one being almost the intuitive. We almost all make the joke of a middle child or something like that, but there's there's mm-hmm. truth to it. And and there's there's uh, manageable experience uh, associated with that. So you're talking about sibling position there. There are six other concepts that are with that. and And, and what this highlights, I think, is that when a family business participant whether they're an owner or or, or a family member only or uh, however they fit into this system it is a system and and when you are sensing tension there is probably reasons for that tension but that that tension can be good because it can work positively but it can also be very negative and that you need help when you want to manage those tensions. You you might not be able to, uh, as a founder, for example, who's transitioning his or her wealth, you may not be able to make everything perfect, but you might be able to make it better. And if you're sensing that tension, they can reach out to someone like you uh, to to manage that tension a little bit better and do the better planning. So, Steve, if you've if someone's listening to this and they've they've tuned in because the question was, "What if I have tension in my family, the family dynamics of my family business?" Where can they start? Where should they start?
1: Well, first thing is don't ignore it. If you're sensing the tension, it's probably there, And you shouldn't let that deter you. Um, there There's a need to do something. It might take a little bit of courage. Uh, in order to do it. I wouldn't I wouldn't start by you know throwing it out in the open to where exactly where the tension is and, and, and you know try to start a confrontation. I would start with another person in the family who understands the tension but isn't necessarily one of the people involved and that might be a spouse or one of the kids and to express the concern to say we, we really should talk about this as a family. And I think I'm going to need some help in dealing with it because I'm worried about this certain tension. And you might be surprised that uh, with two people on board, whether it's dad and one of the kids or mom and dad, to 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 put it out there that this is something you really want to try to get through or try to understand better and involve people and go very slowly and, and, and sort of validate, are you really, is it really as bad as you think? And, and if it's bad or, or, or worse than you think, then you you might, you probably want to get some help with it. But I, I think that oftentimes when the family group realizes that there's someone in the family who wants to begin having important discussions, but that they're hesitant, I think that they often will be able to sort of sit on their hands and and give those people some space to start to talk because maybe some of the tension is there just because of the lack of understanding and, and the fact that the, there's, there's a lot of ignorance and people don't know. And so they start to make things up. And so often just starting to have the discussions slowly but surely and to let it be known that you want to have these important discussions can be very disarming for people. and, and, I hope that it that it will be and that you'll be able to get started and and oftentimes like the biggest thing the big the, the hardest step to take is the first one. And so if you can be thoughtful and not have high expectations, um, try to enlist the help of at least one other person in the family to start to say I want to have discussions around this. I'm concerned that it might be sensitive and, and, and I hope that everyone will sort of indulge and let's try to have an adult to adult conversation around this, I think you may be surprised that you could start to make some progress.
0: So let's say we have a lawyer or an accountant listening to this right now and they've got a family business client and they're starting to do some business succession planning, some intergenerational transition planning and they're talking about that estate freeze. Uh, that we we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. What should that professional be listening for to pick up evidence of tension? So you know the client. I can imagine scenarios where the client has so much tension in their system at all times that they are actually not even aware of the tension. The tension is the normal, but that the advisor when they hear what's going on they're you know, they maybe have interacted over the years and now they're getting a little bit more information as they're starting to get into this more uh, detailed transition planning. And it's starting to seem like something, not else, but something in addition is going on. Is it too late to reach out to someone like yourself when they've started into the path? Like, is there, is there an optimal time? Is there a point of no return? When
1: I don't know that there's a point of no return. I I, I think... You know, when you're, when you're talking about an advisor listening to someone, I think I, th- I would worry more about the client who is in denial about the tension and is coming to the advisor and saying, this is how I want to structure things. And that the advisor be sitting there going, wait a sec, you want to do this with your kids? I've met your kids. They're never going to get along. This isn't going to work. I think that is hopefully a more likely scenario where, where the professional will clue in on the fact that they're being asked to produce some documents to support a structure that they don't feel has much chance of actually being successful over the long term. And I think that might be more of a red flag or an area where an advisor could sort of raise that flag and say have you thought about discussing it with them and then the answer might be no of course I'll never discuss it with them because they'll never agree well there's there's your red flag right there but um, and maybe that's the ideal time to say I think you should bring someone in who can help you talk through this with your with your kids
0: so who should they be looking for not individual individual names but but you know if you're my background is in law, and if you're just a, sort of a traditional estate planning lawyer, and and uh, you've picked up on this as you've just described, you know a little bit about the family. You've picked up on what you think is some tension. You're you're a little uneasy with some of the things they want to do, and you and you're thinking to yourself, I think they should call somebody to deal with this. What kind of person are they looking for? What's the training? What's the the background uh maybe the experience uh are there other structures that they can look for so i, I do
1: have um
0: a lot do of Do they need a coach or a facilitator
1: well so i i have some competitors who are psychologists and i think some of them will do a great job i also know that if someone would have come to my dad and said, oh, you should call this guy Dr. So-and-so PhD, my dad would have said, screw you, we're not crazy. <laughs> so so I like to think that someone who has MBA on their business card is someone who will more likely, you know, relate to someone who who built a business. Um, I, I came at this from a business background and then morphed through the FEA program into what we would call the soft side or more of the family circle stuff, and I've done you know mediation training and coach training and facilitation training and coach certification, third party neutral training. I've done pretty well most of the things that I've needed to do to not just be another one of those guys who says, "Well, I grew up in a family business, so now I advise them," and I haven't done anything to work on myself. So I I, I would think that um, experience with other family businesses and uh, some efforts to learn the important skills that are required for the family circle specifically. So so there are plenty of advisors that work uh, for the business. There are plenty of advisors who work on the ownership circle. Um, The family circle in the three circle model is the one that, that often is the hardest to find the right kind of advisors for. Uh, it's really really a big thing about chemistry the person has to recognize that when they walk in there they can't take sides and they need to be there for the whole family and needs to understand that and and be clear about that from the word go sometimes um, the family leaders will hire someone and basically expect that person to basically take their side and you know they hire they they'll want to hire someone like me to come in and set their kids straight i, I I'm not interested in those kind of mandates um, it the person needs to know that they are serving the entire system and not the person who signs the checks
0: and I think I heard so they have to trust you and and that's important uh, a lot of professionals uh, their ability to advise that way for the system is limited because of the limitations of their profession. Yep. Lawyers often have that limitation. Accountants sometimes have that limitation. Um, you've described yourself as a facilitator and a coach. I think you've you've done a lot more coaching in the in the last year or so and, and that you're really particularly enjoying that. I believe you differentiated between the two a little bit in that you tend to facilitate with the entire family, but you're coaching more one-on-one with any individual in a family. How would you describe the difference between the two and when someone should reach out for a coach or when someone should reach out for a facilitator?
1: So thanks for allowing me to clarify that. So yeah, when I when I got into this work, the the, uh, the big juicy stuff that I wanted to get into was get right in the middle and work with families. And, I, and I've done that and it, it is very rewarding and it, it brings in mediation skills and facilitation skills and often also some one-on-one coaching with individual family members. What I've started to realize in the last year or so is, is sort of what I was talking about a bit on the Bowen stuff is that if one person can change, they can change the whole system. And I did my uh, coaching certification that I completed last year. And, and because of that, I needed to find some more individual clients to do the hours that I needed. And it was while doing that that I realized, hey, you know what? This is actually can be a lot more stimulating. And I have a lot more capacity to add a few more individual clients than, than adding whole families. And to see the ability to, to, to work with one person and have that one person up their own personal game and help them improve themselves. And then watching and learning from them how those changes that I'm helping them make have been, you know, catapulting into changes within the family has been one of the unexpectedly new rewarding things that I've started to notice. And so I want to do more of that. And it's often easier for one person to reach out and hire a coach than for a whole family to reach out and find a facilitator so i'm open for both and i love to do both and you know tricky family business situations are what they're my my bread and butter and i I love to speak with families about the challenges they have and and figure out the best way to help them get through them
0: well i think that's a, a a very clear way of of uh, just uh, offering some clarity between the the two roles that you play and it's am- amazing to me now just in having talked to you about the bowen work that you were doing how very consistent the coaching work is with the general theory of that of that bowen work you're helping to make individuals make the changes they need because that's where the change has to start for the system to change so I think that that I think the universe calls you to where you belong at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And that's that's probably taking you there quite naturally. Steve, if if people listening to this will be everywhere. Uh, I don't know all their postal and zip codes. Hopefully, they'll be everywhere. If they want to reach out to you, if they want to work with you, you're in Montreal. You're in Canada. Uh, do you take clients from wherever they reach out?
1: I, I do. I, I've worked with... Clients in different countries; they're mostly Canadian and/or American, but uh, I I don't think that there's any obstacle, especially these days with so many people doing work uh, over Zoom. I've been doing that actually before this pandemic hit, uh, doing a lot of it. Um, The easiest way to find me I'm I'm lucky in that I have a name that is not that common, Steve Legler L E G L E R, and it's not that hard to spell. So. So I usually tell people to Google me and if you Google Steve Legler and if you add like family business or something or even if you don't, I should come up somewhere near the top. Um, You'll be directed most likely to my website or my YouTube channel or my LinkedIn page and all of those are great places to learn more. The website is called ShiftYourFamilyBusiness.com because that was the name of my first book. And uh happy to meet people from business families and talk to them for a while for free, just to hear about their stories. I don't start running a meter. It's all about to getting to know people and establish chemistry before we figure out if if I am the right resource for that person and or that family.
0: And if they want to get a hold of your book, Steve, where do they go for that?
1: Yeah, they're both on Amazon, Shift Your Family Business. And Interdependent Wealth. I'm not sure if Shift Your Family Business is still like in in print. It might be, there might be a delay to get it, but um, Interdependent Wealth is the more recent one. Uh, It's the one about the Bowen stuff. There's more juicy stuff in there for people um, who are interested in some of the stuff we were touching on in this discussion.
0: Well, Steve, you've been a fabulous resource this afternoon. I very much appreciate your gracious Time and the sharing of your great wisdom uh, will be something of interest to all the people that are listening because I think it it is rare that you will come across a family business or any family that doesn't have some tension either on the surface or down below the surface that is causing them to be reluctant to plan and to deal with it. And I think what I've heard from you today is that they shouldn't be afraid of that tension. They should work to manage that tension. And that there's help out there. There's people like yourself that can help them manage that tension and get from a spot that they don't particularly like right now to a better spot for
1: them and for their family. I I like the way you put that. And and I, I, I always try to make sure that I don't come across as saying to anyone that this is easy stuff because it's not easy stuff. It's hard stuff, but it's it's important stuff and it needs to be done. So, so have the courage to take the steps, have the courage to reach out, have the courage to start the discussions because I think deep down, you know that these are discussions that you really should have. And none of us have an unlimited uh, time on this earth to have those. And so starting discussions earlier, even if they might be challenging, Uh, most people are usually glad that they went and they and they bit the bullet and they started those discussions and if you need help please reach out i can't think of a better
0: place to end the conversation thank you steve legler thanks again to my good friend steve legler for joining us this week and sharing so much of his wisdom his contact information will be available on the show notes for this week's show Next week, the Great Guest Parade continues with financial advisor Cindy David, the new board chair for the Conference of Advanced Life Underwriting, or KALU. She will be discussing the question, what if I need a financial plan? We look forward to you joining us then. Have a great week.